Hey, good morning, church. If you have a Bible or you want to dial uh, our passage for today up on your device, we will be in Jonah chapter 3. That's because we are in the middle of our series on the book of Jonah going verse by verse through this Old Testament prophetic book. The byline for this series is Nation, Race, Justice, and Mercy. The reason why that's the byline is because those are themes that we've been talking about in the book through digging through the historical context and what's going on in the text and following the story of this prophet Jonah through his interaction with God and the city of Nineveh, the pagan, ungodly, violent, um, you know, rebellious city that he has called to go preach to. In chapter 3, we find ourselves uh, after God worked on Jonah's heart and after Jonah had an epiphany about God's grace, saying at the end of chapter 2, salvation is of the Lord. And now we see at the beginning of chapter 3, God's word comes back to Jonah calls him to go back to the city of Nineveh and preach, and now we see what God does in the midst of this crazy story. I'm not sure how you felt this week uh, with the elections and the propositions and all the social media and all the new stuff that's going on, but uh, I know that every four years, some Christians will post somewhere or they'll say in some sort of sermon that don't worry about the elections because God is in control and God is a just God. And I'm reminded of that multiple times by lots of Christian voices this week. God's in control. He's not rivaled by America's politics or global politics or any proposition or anything else that's going on in the world. My uh, prayer this week is that I would have enough maturity to trust that that's true. And if you're like me, maybe there's a little bit of anxiety, a little bit too much news watching, too much social media and refreshing on your phone to see election results. And part of that for me is birthed out of an anxiety that injustice is going to win. And that justice will not, uh, that, that human, the moral arc of the universe will not bend towards justice. I say it that way because I'm referencing a quote from Martin Luther King. He said that, that very thing, that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. And uh, it's common for people to believe that that's true and actually kind of misquote Martin Luther King. People have been using that quote for years to say, uh, when basically when the economy is good and when people are being good, they'll throw out the quote and say, hey guys, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. People are basically good. The world will mostly figure itself out in a just way. And yet when you look back at human history or even around the, the world today in different cultures that um, are not American, and then if you kind of even look under the, under the, uh, the um, surface a little bit, even into our country, you'll probably be convinced that uh, injustice sometimes does win out in a sinful and broken world. I find it funny on the topic of, um, of the world being just that when things are good, we kind of start using this quote, we kind of start saying that the world's basically a good place and then we kind of lose our need for God. And in fact, if you look from the 1940s into the 50s and into some of the technolo- technological revolution of the, the uh, history, recent history, you'd probably see a number of people who say the more mature we get, the more technologically advanced we get, the more democratic we get, the less we, people will need God because things will just get better. And yet religious belief is still growing in the world. And yet the world we live in today is more tribal, it's more divided, there's more infighting, and there's a, a, an apparent culture war that's going on. And so what are we doing now? We're blaming God because of the injustice. 
So when things are good, we say, you guys, people are mostly good. We don't need God. And then when things are bad, we get mad at God and say, God, how could you allow these bad things to happen in the world? It seems like with that kind of heart posture, I don't know how God can win in, in our minds and hearts. And yet he does still work in us and even in our world because of his grace and power to overcome that kind of bad attitude. Well, today we're talking about justice. If you're like me, you're nervous about injustice and you're wondering, God, how are you going to make good from some of these weird things that are going on in the world? Or maybe we're filming this during the week, but maybe by Sunday your candidate lost or your proposition lost and you're having an overwhelming sense of dread and doom that the world's just going to go to hell in a handbasket. Well, our God is a God of justice. He is enacting a plan for justice that will bend towards justice. The the arc of the moral universe will bend towards justice because God himself will bend it if he has to. That's a metaphorical way to say Jesus is going to return. And when we have faith in God, when we trust in the biblical God, the God of his son, Jesus Christ, who will return and make every injustice just, Make every wrong right. Revelation 21 says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's bringing heaven to earth. And when that happens, of course, we know our future in the end is secure in Christ. Because he's going to bend this world into his will as our our returning once and future king to make everything right and just. We get to be a part of that plan. Martin Luther King used that quote because he was trying to inspire a nation, a racist nation, an unjust nation, to become just by taking on the plan of the biblical God's uh, justice project within the world. We get to be a part of that as Christians. And Jonah chapter 3 allows us into seeing the heart of God in this narrative that is the, the book of Jonah. So let's dig into it. We're going to go verse by verse. I'll explain as we read, and then we'll kind of conclude with a few points. Take a look in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I gave you. Jonah chapter 3 reminds us of what's happened in the story so far. We're meant to be kind of reminded once the the fish vomits up Jonah onto dry land, the word of the Lord just seems to immediately come back to Jonah in chapter 3 in this instance. And so we're meant to be reminded, oh yeah, what happened about this word of the Lord? Well, you go back to chapter 1 and you see that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, asked him to go to the emerging pagan power center of the world at the time, the brilliant and brutal city of Nineveh, and he runs in the opposite direction, yada yada a fish, yada yada vomit, and now Jonah gets a second chance to be a part of God's justice project, his salvation project in the world. And if we remember back to chapter one, uh, there's a very just kind of fair thing going on that God is trying to do through Jonah to this evil city of Nineveh. Because it says in chapter one, go preach to Nineveh because their violence, their evil has arised up against me and I want you to go preach against it. So what that means is we have a God who has an opinion about Nineveh. God has an opinion about their politics. God has an opinion about how they should treat women and children and enemies And he's trying to get Jonah to be a part of that solution. And of course, Jonah runs. That's part of the story. He doesn't want to see them saved. He doesn't want to see them just. He doesn't want to see them benefit from the the love of God kind of flourishing within their culture. But God has an opinion. 
He wants to tell those Ninevites how they should live their life. I say the word justice, and sometimes we have different definitions of it. Like in our culture, we talk about social justice. And that's a term that I think people have kind of put together to wrap their heads around what justice looks like within a society. But it's not strictly a biblical term. There's no time that it's mentioned in scripture. And, and maybe it's more fruitful then for us to talk about just justice because we're trying to redefine that word as God defines it. And today's sermon is not a, a, an exposition, a total detailed description of what the Bible has to say about God's heart for justice. But there is some cool stuff revealed in, in chapter 3. So we can kind of gain something about God's heart for justice from this chapter. Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, which is a book that a, a group of people from our church went through together and dialogued every week as we read chapter by chapter uh, during the middle of COVID or what I hope is the middle of COVID. And, uh, and so in this book, we found out that if you look at all these different verses about justice, that the biblical definition of justice is people getting what they deserve in God's eyes. People getting what they deserve in God's eyes. What that means is that God's view of justice is both positive and negative. It's us getting what we deserve because he's a just God with a moral authority and a capital T truth that is authoritative over all of our own definitions of truth, or to use another kind of common phrase from today, better than more authoritative over our lived experience and our own definitions or opinions about God or about morality. So God has like a capital T truth. And so sometimes that truth comes to bear with our evil. And so God speaks against it. He's angry at injustice. The Bible uses words like wrath for that. But God's justice also is defined by people getting what they deserve on a positive level, grace and mercy. And last week we talked about uh, the, the Hebrew word that popped up in chapter 2, hesed, the covenantal, um, eternal, forgiving, unconditional love of God. Hesed is the Hebrew word for that. And uh, both things are part of God's justice. If you look at that word and how it plays out in the Bible. So this is an unjust society. And because there's kind of mixed age groups in the room, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I'll tell you that if you look up um, in the British Museum, you'll see there are huge um, sections of walls that used to be a part of palaces in Nineveh. And they depict, as you would walk through these walls, you would see people dying, people being hurt, and uh, people being hurt publicly in a way that led to their death and was meant to scare people that walked into the city of Nineveh. And it's, it's detailed. And archaeologists have dug up these different descriptions that are now preserved in museums of a war between Nineveh and Israel. And it describes the bad things that happened to the nation of Israel if they rivaled this city. Like I said, they were kind of brilliant about their military strategy and known for that in the day, but they were also brutal. And they were the most brutal society that had ever existed in human history to that point. Can you imagine if you were Jonah and you were called to go preach to that city? It's quite a task. And yet in chapter three, we see a very interesting response from these brutal, brilliant people. Let's keep reading in our passage. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord this time and went to Nineveh. Now, now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Now, here, um, you have to understand the genre of this text is has a lot of exaggeration because it's trying to really drive home a point. 
And I don't think literally that city would have been three days walking apart because you could walk 16 miles in a day and it, and it just wasn't literally that, uh, that big. But along with the great plant, the great storm, and the great exaggerated everything that goes into the book, it's like everything is just like ramped up. All the, all the volume knobs are turned up on this book to drive home a point. And so they're trying to explain that this was, in the Hebrew, literally, a huge city. And that Hebrew word that describes it as a huge city is meant to uh, connote, it's meant to convey two things. That it was big, probably one of the biggest cities ever to that time especially, and that it was very important. And the, the Hebrew word describes both of those things. And I think it's meant to describe both of those things in this passage. It was a big city. It took three days for him to go through it. And as the narrative goes on, uh, on one day's journey, he goes into the city. Verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, and now here's Jonah's sermon, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the whole sermon. I mean, it's not a three-point sermon. There's no funny stories. What kind of sermon is this, you know? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In Hebrew, it's actually only five words. Very short sermon. So you might ask, were they just being concise? Were they just trying to keep the story short? Well, I don't think the Bible has a, 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 a preoccupation about keeping stories short. The part of the narrative uh, that this plays is, that's all you're meant to know about Jonah's sermon. Because that was the gist of it. That was the, those were the words that he was trying to convey to the city of Nineveh. So Jonah goes into the city. He says five words, and it's a warning. And you'll notice his sermon doesn't have anything to do with God. And that clues you in to the fact that though Jonah had an epiphany in chapter 2 saying salvation is of the Lord, like that's God's amazing gift to me is his grace. And yet the word comes to him and now he acts good and does what, what God's uh, d commanded him to do. Now we're seeing for the first time, maybe there's still a problem in Jonah's heart that's kind of flaring up. Now let me just pause and say before we look down on Jonah too much, don't you know that that's true in your own life? That we have these epiphany moments sometimes as Christians where we say, I see God so clearly now, how could I ever forget it? And then you get stressed out, you get afraid, you get into an election season, you get into a political argument with someone that you're getting a little heated about, or you get into that family situation that brings out the worst in you, whatever it is, and we forget that our salvation is from God. We forget that he's graced us with love and that that grace should come through us and love other people. We are Jonah in this sense. Jonah is a messenger and a prophet, but as far as being a prophet from God, he doesn't mention God even once. It's an extreme, crazy kind of cosmic, uh, a comic, I'm sorry, comic element to this story because uh, even though his sermon stinks so badly, now we see the Ninevites are stumbling over themselves to repent to God. Look in verse five. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. So the Ninevites, in verse 5, believed God. Now this is a tangent, but still an important one. That the, the root of real repentance, the root of real life change, has to start with belief change. Sometimes when we think about faith in God. We, see, we define that word faith as like ignorant belief. Um, that, you know, we have to kind of just give up our scientific minds and give up any questions you have or doubts about God. And you just have to believe God, have faith in God. And that's the definition of it. But that's not really a biblical definition of faith at all. 
When you see in verse 5 that it says they believed God, you should see here that they trusted God. They saw that their lives should be in his hands. And that's kind of a good definition of what biblical obedience and faith in God looks like. They first said, we think these principles about what God is saying to us are true. And now we should live accordingly. That's a great definition of faith. Being convinced of God's truthfulness and worthiness. And then practically saying, how can I live that out in my life? And they, they proclaimed to fast and they seem to have done everything that would be normal in a society to say, we are corporately repenting to God. Verse 6, we see that the goal of God's judgment kind of works with the Ninevites. The king even uh, takes off his robes and then like descends down from, you can imagine, a throne and a, and a high place and then sits down in the dust He's saying, I'm giving up my right to organize my own life. That's repentance. And he's saying, I'm going to go sit down where it's low and where I'm common and where I'm reminded that I'm, that I'm dust. And then he puts on sackcloth. Uh, it's itchy. It's gross. It's meant to make you not feel comfortable so that you're sitting with the consequences of your sin. Now, there's two things in the book that are really important right now. One, we know that Jonah's repentance, that Jonah needs to repent of his repentance. He needs to repent again continually. But we also know that the, the repentance of the Ninevites was not complete repentance or conversion either. If you look in the Hebrew, it says that, that every time they talk about God, they're talking about the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the general name for God and not the covenantal biblical name for the biblical God, Yahweh. And so Jonah knows this as he's hearing and seeing them repent. He's seeing them get real busy with all kinds of new religious activity. And you can imagine him still being kind of self-righteous and judgmental towards their repentance because their repentance is temporary. It might even be fearful. And they just want God to be compassionate because they do believe that God could crush their city because he's big and powerful. And so even their repentance needs some more repenting. Uh, it also says that repentance happened from the greatest to the least. And, and I'll just say this very quickly, but, you know, in a society like that, you have to understand there wasn't much of a middle class. And if there was a middle class, the middle class people were unjust towards one another. But mostly it was a lower, lower income, lower class people and the rich elites. And the rich elites took advantage of everyone. The middle class would have taken advantage of one another. The poor class was taking advantage of one another and trying to take advantage of people above them to kind of like get a step up in that society. We know something from history about the way babies were disregarded, especially if they were girls. The way that women would be abused for just simply being physically uh, smaller and then even the way that works out in their society to be uh, subjugated and unheard and unrepresented. Uh, words that we use today to try and say, you know, we believe that people have value, but they just didn't have that presupposition in that society. And so it was an unjust society with all the things that you could probably even imagine as norms. What we would call unjust were norms in a society like that. And the greatest to the least repented. It wasn't just the rich elites trying to save their power. It wasn't just the middle class trying to save their security. It wasn't just the lower class trying to just get by, but all of those socioeconomic classes saw a need to repent. It went through the whole society and every type of person. Verse 7. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything 
Do not let them eat or drink. Verse 8. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on Elohim, on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. History records that this is not the first time this happened. You might even be cynical to say, hey, you can read a history book. There was no time where the city of Nineveh repented and became followers of Yahweh. And so obviously this was a temporary kind of thing. We also know from history that because of some solar eclipses, some famines and some plagues, there are other decrees in human history where the Ninevites did this very thing. They said, it doesn't look like we're going to have enough food this year. Everyone stop your violence. Everyone stop killing each other. Everyone stop hurting each other. We're not doing anything bad because we need to, uh, we need to please whatever Elohim, whatever God is up there. We need him to be on our side or her to be on our side. They would have thought. Verse 9. I'm sorry, let me back up to verse 8. The one thing that's also important here is that in verse 8, the Hebrew word shu is the word turn. He's saying we need to repent. We need to do a 180 turn. It's a, it's a turn that was used when walking. And it's simply meant to describe the fact that you would walk in one direction, you would shoo in, uh, in the process to change a direction, and then you would go somewhere else and course correct. Let everyone give up their evil ways and shoo and turn meaning that a judgment has been made and we need to go into a different place. Verse 9. Who knows, they say, God may yet relent with his compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that they, we will not perish. I love that in God's grace, the Ninevites are filling in the blanks on what God is like, even though none of that information came from Jonah. Jonah didn't say, God is compassionate, and if you turn to him, he's, he's so merciful. Let me show you this verse from Exodus where it says he's abounding in love. He didn't do any of that stuff. Jonah said, you guys are going to burn. 40 days, you're toast. And then, in a comic, kind of like ridiculous way, the king of Nineveh is like, we're going to put sackcloth on the animals. We're all going to be sitting in dust. Nobody eat or drink anything. The, the sheep, the cows, everyone's going to repent. This is like a comic absurdist level of repentance. Who knows? Maybe God is triune and one day we'll send his son to die on a cross for us. You know, they're filling in the blanks on a bunch of stuff in this story. Who knows? Maybe God will repent and re, uh, relent and have compassion on us. Although they didn't get that information from Jonah at all. And then verse 10, when God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now we go into chapter four and the story continues and show up next Sunday and we'll continue on that passage. I want to close with just some like really quick application. Now that we've talked about justice and injustice, and we've seen something about God's hair trigger attitude towards mercy to pagan people, to violent people, to hurting people, and to people who hurt others. If this book ended now, we would have a very happy ending and a moral lesson that says, listen to God, because he's going to make you a hero that saves lots of lives. That's not how the story ends. In chapter 4, we see a whole different turn about uh, Jonah's continued self-righteousness and desire to see them burn and his lack of compassion. But God arranges the world for his purposes. He's at work in the world and we get to be a part of it. And justice is 
where he is bending the arc of the moral universe. So I just want to close with this. Let's talk about the source and the solution of injustice. The source of injustice and the solution to injustice so that we can be a part of God's plan for justice in the world. The source of injustice in Nineveh was its pagan roots. Now we use the word pagan to kind of mean uh, like really extravagant and ungodly. We use it in a negative way, but it wasn't negative in the day. Pagan simply meant polytheistic and pluralistic. Two fancy words to say many gods and everyone has their own idea about what God is like. Uh, there was a God for partying in certain types of uh, parts of human history. I'm thinking in New Testament history. There's a God of different vocations. There was certainly a God of each nation and a God of each race. And everyone has their own God. They worship in their own way. And you are not meant to tell me about my God or how I am to please my God. And all of us just need to make our own efforts together, piecing together a process to please our God. And in today's culture, a lot of people believe that about the different religions of the world. And the idea is that, to use another fancy term, relativism or relative truth. Everyone has their own lived experience and their own truth about, especially about God. And you're not meant to disrupt my opinion about God. Um, that attitude, for the last 20 years, at least, has meant to pr produce peace in the world. Our, our world is more relativistic now than it's ever been. When you look at the last six months, does it seem like we're at peace? I don't know. Sometimes I see God's common grace at work in the world. That's kind of in an amazing way. And yet I'm still reminded daily that we live in a very broken world. We live in a very corrupt world. We live in a world where people with power do not use that power for human flourishing. And therefore, at the top levels of ruling in our world, there is injustice. I hope I don't need to even work too hard to convince you of that. Maybe you can come in person on a Sunday and we can talk more about it if you disagree. The, the world that we live in in the West today says, if everyone has their own opinion about God, that will produce peace. But in the pagan world, because everyone had their own God, it naturally devolved into the different gods warring with one another. And it worked its way into their creation myths and all their stories. And there was a culture war at, at present with all of these different pagan societies and even constant in New Testament times as well. And part of it just comes to the fact that when everyone has their own God, then no one has an agreed upon definition of the value of human life. And we're starting to see it creep into our culture. And without getting into it too much, we're starting to see that there was a time where everyone agreed that racism was wrong. And then now we're entering into a time where some definitions of racism are wrong and some are, um, are, are meant to kind of equal the playing field, though the principle of racism should still be wrong. We kind of say, let's maybe justify it in some ways to create equality in a way that we also want. Now, I'm not trying to get into politics too much, but I'm saying like you're noticing cultural commentators are mentioning that that is a, 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 an issue that's on the ballot again sometimes. That's up for discussion again sometimes in our culture. Pagan societies, everyone has their own God. Inevitably, those different gods create a culture war and create tribalism, self-righteousness, hurting one another, not listening, not seeking unity in a culture, and so it creates war. So paganism creates injustice. So the Bible describes. There's a second cause for injustice, though, and that's religiosity. Religiosity means I act within my religion. Jonah is a victim to this. And I look at other people, they're not doing the right things to obey God. And so I look down at them. 
And maybe I'm not angry at them. Maybe I'm not overtly uh, unjust toward them and, and seek to hurt them. And yet, if I look down on that person because I'm religious and they're not, I'm doing the right things to be good with God and they're not, then that's a source of injustice and violence and uh, an ungodly, well, I'm thinking here that the opposite of justice is not love. The opposite of justice is indifference. Sometimes when we talk about justice, we kind of say, well, let's stop talking about authoritative justice, God being just. Let's just talk about loving one another and accepting one another. But Jonah, if anything, is simply indifferent towards the Ninevites. He doesn't care if they're saved or if they're not. And so sometimes violence and evil and justice is created by religious people because they simply leave people who make bad choices to say, well, that's what you get. You made a bad choice. You should be more like me, religious and good. And so injustice is created by having enough indifference to say, you're poor because you don't make good choices. Or you, made a, a, you, you had a different sins in your life, sexual sin, intimacy sins, um, cultural sins, and, and it's against God. And so you're, you're culpable. You're to be punished for, with the consequences of your actions. And yet, do you remember earlier when we said that the biblical view of justice is that God, people get what they deserve in God's eyes? In chapter 3, here, God has a heart to give grace and mercy and to offer a chance at repentance to people who are of a different race than Jonah or different uh, religious belief than Jonah. And God clearly has them as a part of his mission to make the world um, saved through his grace. That's the source of injustice. Paganism is a source of injustice and religiosity is a source of injustice. And by God's wonderful mercy, there's a third option for us to live our lives, which is with the God of the Bible. At this point in human history, we're able to look back on Jesus Christ and live for him, live for the gospel instead of religion or paganism, which is another word for the, the culture we live in today. The solution to injustice is forgiveness and living out God's call to give, to sacrifice, because he sacrificed himself for us. We sacrifice ourselves for others. We sacrifice money and time and relationship for other people. That's justice. We forgive. When people hurt us, we access the forgiveness that God has given us. And then we, we look at the, the sin that we've done against God, and yet he forgave us. And so when sin, people sin against us, we forgive them. We live justly in that way. We fight for peace in the world and reconciliation amongst groups, maybe even in our city that tend to war against each other, that tend to talk down on one another. And we're a part of a peaceful dialogue that can mediate between maybe two pagan tribes within our culture. Let's say one is represented by red and one is represented by blue. And then the church can be something that's different than both of those things that brings reconciliation to people who disagree and fight and malign each other and don't have enough goodness to treat each other with the God-given dignity and love and respect that God sees that, they, uh, that God wants to give them. That was a big statement. I hope you hear my heart, that the church is meant to be this thing that brings reconciliation to all different types of people, especially in the time of a political divide. And lastly, if you want to live out God's heart for justice in the world, see his persistent grace in this book. For Nineveh, who has not cleaned their life up fully, and yet God is making them a part of his plan. He's offering forgiveness to them. He's, he's developing a relationship with them through Jonah. 
And then if, as we get into chapter four next week, we'll see that God is still graceful and merciful to Jonah, who still has a bad attitude and still self-righteous, and it still wants God to be on his own agenda. We have a very strategic job to do to follow God in our city. As Jonah was called into a city, we live in a big metropolis of pagan people who are yet to know how wonderful and merciful and just our God is. To the extent that we live for him, that we delight in him, and then go into our city, we can be a part of God's justice in the world. That was a lot. That was a lot that we just talked about today. Let's pray that God helps us to be a part of that plan.